All right, friends, Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and uh, thank you for joining the show. And this is a new show, but I'm still a little bit fired up from the last show that ended for me five minutes ago. And uh, I wasn't going to open with commentary, but I, I do want to say something about how to assess Christianity. The way to assess Christianity, and this is with regards to our, our last caller, if you listen to the last show, um, the way to assess Christianity is not to assess it by based on something someone said on a radio show, even if that was really gross, terrible, or promoted some evil person. You have to first assess it by its values in general, by the person who is the founder, and the things that the founder said should be characteristic of his followers, all of it, not just cherry-picking certain things that uh, you like. Like, Jesus was so loving, and therefore, um, if you think homosexuality is bad, you're being mean, and you wouldn't be saying that. Jesus wouldn't say that. Well, Jesus was a Torah-observant Jew, and he would say that because the Old Testament says that. It identifies the evil of that and a whole bunch of other things, okay? And um, I'm not cherry-picking here. There's a whole bunch of other evil things right in that passage in Leviticus 18, like adultery and incest and child sacrifice. I mean, it seems like these are the kinds of things that transcend any law, okay? So um, you identify that, and you say something about that, oh, you're awful. Jesus would never. Yes, he would. And in fact, on a high Christology, which is my view, Jesus wrote that. He didn't just agree with it. He wrote it. He's responsible for it. Okay. So uh, you have to look at what Jesus said and taught and did and what he told his followers to do. And then you look at his followers writ large. And looking at a particular radio show that you heard once where somebody was nasty or encouraged or promoted some despot from Central America isn't a fair way of assessing. I assess by the churches I'm in almost, you know, every week all over the country for 30 years. Actually, longer than that, just 30 years now, which stands a reason. And I see fabulous people doing fabulous things, and I see the announcements, and I see the bulletin, and I see the different things they're doing in the community and in the and in the country and for people in other countries and stuff like that. And the thing that Christians get a bad rap for is their faithfulness to the Scripture on things that the culture doesn't like and doesn't agree with. And that was my point in my commentary in the uh, the show earlier this week, for me, last hour. Um, we, we, we can't assess the Church's legitimacy in its communication with the world by the way the world reacts to what it says. We cannot use their assessment as an appropriate assessment of us. We can listen to what they say and ask whether or not the claims they're making are sound or not, like I said, if we're being that way, inappropriately, in a biblical sense, then shame on us. But if it's if we are being faithful to Scripture, not only in what we say, but the way we say it, then not shame on us. Um, blessed are us. Wait a minute, is that a good grammar? Let me just read it. I was kind of paraphrasing poorly. Matthew chapter 5. Now I'm paging through my Gospels here to find it. 
uh, Matthew 5, and Jesus says, Blessed are those, or rather, blessed are you when people insult you and persecutely and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. When somebody calls you homophobic, that's a false charge. If all they're saying is, you're bad because you think homosexual, homosexual behavior is sin. Well, verse 11 of Matthew 5 applies to you. Blessed are you. And that's the point I'm making. We can't simply take the assessment of the world as a sound measure of whether we are acting appropriately as Christians. Because they're going to be angry when we tell the truth, even in a gracious way. This is true more now than ever before. And so the world's assessment is not to be our guide. Now, if somebody cries foul, we can listen to what the claim or the charge happens to be, but keep in mind that it's likely in our culture to cry foul because we are trying to restrain, we are suggesting that their lifestyle is not right before God. Whatever it happens to be, there's a whole host of things, not just kind of the classic. I, I was interviewed a number of years ago by Newsweek magazine, and this is just to kind of make this broader point about people assessing Christianity. And the quest, first question was, why is it that you Christians only care about homosexuality and abortion? And this was right around the time Katrina had happened, right? And I said, that's not all we care about. That's all you write about. And so the rest of the world is going to get the impression of what we care about based on what the press writes about us and our concerns. And I said, every church that I've been into in the, in, in the last few months at the time has some project helping the people who are suffering from Katrina. Where's your article in Newsweek about that? Now, we talked about 45 minutes, and there was not a single word from our conversation that made it into the final article. It all was on the cutting room floor. Why did not fit the narrative? So this is why I'm just saying we need to be careful careful about using the culture's assessment of us as a sound assessment of our of of our behavior morally speaking with regards to culture remember what did the crowd say to pilate in mark 15 crucify him crucify him crucify him. That was their assessment of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? And he was... He didn't do anything wrong. He is pretty good. All right, we're going to go to open my calls here for this hour. I'll take other calls as they come in, but right now it's... Uh, and I usually go to the oldest call first, because they've been waiting longest for me to respond. 
And uh, by the way, open mic calls are like when you call in when I'm not here, and then you record the call. But you have a special number for that, or you can do it on our website, which is probably best. Go to our homepage, str.org, and under podcasts, you'll find live broadcasts, and you'll have an opportunity to leave your message. And, uh, and you'll see how this works in just a moment. Or you can call 857 342 5787 or 857-DIAL-STR. All right, that'll, that's all the same number. All right, let's hear from Jeff and about Antichrist, First John chapter 2. Hey, Greg, Jeff here from Canada. I'm looking at some verses here I was discussing with my friend, First John chapter 2, uh, verses 22 and 23. And it's talking about those who reject Christ as being liars and antichrists. And I'm trying to take into account the stand to reason methodology about never reading a Bible verse. <laughs> so I you. go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, but I'm still unclear who John is addressing here. Is he talking to specific people at this specific church? Or does he mean all people who reject Christ? Um, that obviously would mean that anybody who is not a Christian, uh, according to John here, would be a liar or an antichrist. Mm -hmm. And in this conversation with my friend, specifically, Dennis Prager came up. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thought from my friend was that this would mean that because Dennis has rejected Jesus as Messiah, he would be the kind of person John is talking about here, a liar and an antichrist. And that I just can't reconcile that in my mind when I think about the body of Dennis Prager's work and all the good that he has done. Um, so obviously he has rejected Christ as Messiah and that has bearing on his final destination at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. But does that mean currently he's a liar and an antichrist? Uh, I mean, if you take the reading of this one way, that is what it means, but it just, that doesn't sit right with me. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd love your interpretation on it. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Greg. Well, this is a good question, um, a little bit difficult to answer. Part of the context here, Jeff, is that you have a book that is also addressing a broader problem, and that is Gnosticism in the Church. Gnosticism is, is actually at the end of the first century when John is writing, uh, beginning to take hold in the second century. It was a huge problem. Um, and Gnosticism is the view that there is there is secret knowledge or inside information that uh, that people get to develop higher spirituality. And also part of the notion was that in a dualistic world, you've got matter and spirit, and spirit is good and matter is bad, kind of on that dualistic characterization. And therefore, Jesus could not have been a, 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 a Messiah who came in the flesh, that is, in the physical form, because taking on flesh would make him evil, because he took on flesh, flesh being evil on that characterization. And, um, and therefore, um, the view of a lot of the Gnostics was that Jesus only appeared to be a true human, and uh, that's called docetism, all right? So this is part of the background. This is why I said don't, don't uh, trust every spirit. These are spirits that are supposed to give this inside knowledge, but test the spirit, and then they give an objective test, 
anybody who does not confess that Jesus the Messiah has come in the flesh is Antichrist. So some of this stuff is tied into this false ideology that is beginning to compete with Christianity, and John is speaking to that, okay? Now, there is an individual who is called the Antichrist who will appear in opposition to Christ in Christianity. That's why he's called the Antichrist. But there is also a general sense in which the term Antichrist is being used in Scripture, and that is the the contrary ideology to Christianity. That's Antichrist as well. And the contrary ideology is not the truth, but it is a lie. It is possible to tell a lie without being aware that you're lying. All right, and um, but nevertheless, the view or the point of view that is offered is still a lie. And if it's a lie regarding Christ, then it is in opposition to Christ or anti-Christ, as it were. All right, and so this is the way I think the term is used in a very general sense. And then here in First John chapter two, John is kind of pressing that particular point: Who is the liar? Well, it's the person who says that Jesus is not the Messiah, all right? So that is a lie, and it is being, when a person who advances that, they are telling a lie, even if they genuinely believe they're telling the truth. Now, Dennis Prager's name came up, and many of you know I've known Dennis for over 30 years, and uh, and still am in contact with Dennis, you know, and so... Um, I have said in the past that Dennis Dennis Prager is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Now, I don't think that Dennis would take umbrage at that because he knows exactly what I mean. I advance the idea that the cross of Christ is necessary for salvation, since Jesus is the Messiah, not just for Jews, but for the world. Dennis thinks I'm wrong. And, uh, and, and insofar as I advance the idea that faith in Christ is the means by which someone accomplishes or achieves, those are not the right word, are the means by which somebody obtains salvation, he would say, I'm mistaken. In fact, he has said that. (laughs) We were on stage together, and he said, so as I understand it, Works don't mean anything in your view, essentially said this, but it's actually faith, not works. Now, I think that's a misunderstanding, but I knew the point he was getting at, and I did the best I could to clarify the particular point. But we are—Dennis's works-based righteousness, clearly. Um, my view is the opposite of that. Not that works don't matter, but that works aren't going to be adequate to save, and we all need forgiveness from God's rescuer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So one could say, Dennis could say, that I am an enemy of his view, (laughs) just as I would say he's an enemy of my view, but we're not enemies together. It's just a matter of acknowledging the differences of opinion on something that really matters, okay? And so I think this would in a broad sense, apply to people like Dennis and anyone else who denies the truth of the gospel. To deny the truth of the gospel and be and, and promote a lie that is consistent with the lie of Antichrist doesn't mean you're a 
the nastiest person alive. You could be one of the nicest people. In fact, I actually said this over 30 years, in the 80s, when I was on the air with Dennis. I said, Dennis, you're a better man than I will probably ever be. And I meant that very genuous. It was genuinely. It was, I was not patronizing at all. And I still feel the same. He's a magnificent individual from by human standards, certainly compared to me. Okay. You're a better man than I'll ever be. But I will end up in heaven and you will not because the standard God set is not the standard you think it is. Not works, but trust in the Messiah. Okay. Now, the irony is that in that particular discussion, this is just a little side note, there was not only Dennis and I on that show, but there was a Roman Catholic priest and a, and a rabbi. I was being characterized on that show by one of the panelists, I don't think it was Dennis, as being self-righteous when I said that. And I said, you know, what's ironic about the statement is I'm the only person on this panel that is saying that my righteousness is not going to get me into heaven, but Jesus is going to get me into heaven. Yet I, I'm the only one saying it's not me who's righteous, yet I was the one being characterized as self-righteous. So uh, back to Jeff here. Uh, this passage in First John, I think, would apply in the general sense to anybody who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a false view, and it's got damaging effects. I think Dennis has done magnificently in terms of his the good he's done uh, on a human basis to the country. Uh, it's hard to imagine any other individual having more impact for good in this country than Dennis Prager. And that's not hyperbole. When you think of the billions of views of Prager U, okay? So in a, in a very kind of temporal sense, there's lots of good that, that, that we could applaud Dennis for, and I do. Um, at the same, and at the same time, when it comes to the eternal issue, what he promotes is dangerous in an eternal sense. Okay? And uh, I'm not sure if he'd use those same words regarding me, but I think that would be the same attitude. If I'm promoting faith alone, and he's promoting works alone, we have two different systems. His system is the true system on his view, and mine would be the false system. So that's all I'm saying here. Uh, all right, so we covered Dennis <laughs> and the broader issue of um, Antichrist. Uh, let's go to um, let's 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 hear from Pauline. You got that, Kyle? Yeah. Okay. Here we go, Pauline. You're on. Hello, Greg. My name is Pauline, and my question is. Is it a sin to work at a at a supermarket where cigarettes and uh, alcohol are among the uh, goods that are sold at this place? Is it a sin? All right, good. Because um, oh, there we go, still working. Go ahead. If one is working as a cash a cashier because they are responsible to sell the cigarettes, they are responsible to sell other commodities as well so i guess anyway my question is that if it's a sin to work 
to work at a supermarket where alcohol and cigarettes among the commodities being sold. Okay, thank you so much and may God bless you all. That's sweet. Thank bye you. Bye bye. Bye and thank you for your question. Um, this one's an easy one to answer, and the answer is no. It's not a sin to work at a supermarket where cigarettes and alcohol are among the goods that are sold. Um, but part of the reason I would say that is because it's not a sin, in my view, to use or purchase cigarettes or alcohol. Now, in some circles, this is a an extreme statement. Uh, it's like, what? Are you kidding me? Um but I don't see any scriptural justification for condemning the consumption or use of either of those. Now, are cigarettes good for you? No. Do they smell bad? Yes. But does that make it a sin? No. There's all kinds of things that people consume, like sugar in all its various forms that are not good for people and Christians, but we don't fuss about that. You know, one, <laughs> one person said, well, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're turning it into a pizza hut. Well, that's not the problem, because that verse in 1 Corinthians has nothing to do with physical health. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're not supposed to be sleeping with prostitutes. That's what Paul's talking about. He is not saying that our physical condition makes our temples unfit. He's saying our moral condition makes our temples unfit. Okay? So, uh, and by the way, if, if it were the case that our physical condition makes our temple, physical body, an unfit temple, then everyone who's sick or dying of some disease, whatever the cause, would be an unfit temple. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. It, it is a standard way of taking it, but it isn't what he's, he's talking about. Now, I am looking for a verse here that I looked up a bunch of times, and I thought it was right around Psalm 104 or thereabouts, but it's a passage where the psalmist is extolling God for all the wonderful things that he's given us. And one of the things that he's given us, it looks like Psalm 104, it covers all those bases, but I can't find my verse. And it says that he, essentially it says that he has given us wine to make us happy. It's in there somewhere. He has given us wine to make us happy. How can it be a sin to consume alcohol when at least one alcoholic beverage in Scripture is blessed as a source of uplifted, uh, what's the right word, you know, <laughs> feeling? <laughs> wine to make us joyful and happy. Now, the Bible does condemn drunkenness all kinds of problems with that, but not drinking alcohol as a mood heightener, since it looks like 104.15. Thank you, Amos. I'll go right there and find it. 
Now, and that, by the way, acknowledging that some people have difficulty with alcohol, I, I acknowledge that. Stay away from it then. Some people have difficulty with fast cars, too. He causes the grass to grow for cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad. Hmm. 104.15. So, um, I don't think it's a sin to work at a supermarket that sells items that are not sinful to even purchase or to use. Now, I'm not fond of cigarettes, but uh, I know a gazillion apologists who love to sit around and talk philosophy and theology and apologetics over cigars. And uh, alcohol is part of that session, usually. No scriptural injunction against either. Therefore, it would not be wrong to work at a supermarket where those things are sold. By the way, what if it turned out that they that it was wrong? There were things there that were sold that were not right. Let's just say there are magazines that have salacious content. Would it be okay to work at the supermarket in that circumstance? I actually think it would, would be. Now, a person may feel uncomfortable, then don't work there. But I think that that working at the supermarket doesn't mean that you are promoting the particular salacious magazines that happen to be for sale over there on the news rack or whatever. Um, I don't think one entails the other, morally speaking. So from a, diff a number of different angles, I, I, I think... I don't think there's any concern here, Pauline, but I do thank you for your question. Uh, time for a break? Yeah, let's take one and we'll get some more questions here. Uh, one just called in. We'll get to that and some more of your open call questions. Stand to reason. Stay with us. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. 
Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends, Greg Kokel and in Riverside, Bob. And, Bob, I just drove through your town last night around 9.30 on my way back from Las Vegas. And that is one miserable road when there's a lot of people on it, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it can be. And, of course, you drove on a good day yesterday, but today well, we've got quite the overcast. Uh, well, no, it was nice. The weather was nice, but I think – I. You know, it was a four-day weekend, and everybody was leaving at the same time I was. And so it was just chug, chug, <laughs> chug, 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 chug for five hours through the desert. Anyway, I was glad to see Riverside because that's, that's, that's when the traffic broke. So anyway, what's on your mind here, Rob, Bob? Okay. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, this question came out of a somewhat, uh, well, a very sad moment for me. My wife passed away back in November. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Thank you. And as a result of that, and I neglected to mention, I am a longtime listener. I started listening to you in the mid-90s, one of your strategic partners. Wow, wow. Thank you for that, too. That's great. And my wife was, too. So we both continue to support you on that regard. Thank you. So I have a nine-year-old precocious granddaughter. Her name is Hayden. And Mm -hmm. her question was, well, what is Grandma doing in heaven? Mm-hmm. And doesn't doesn't she get bored? And it was sort of the question of: Are those who have passed waiting in time, or you know, so we've got people you know from the eons back, or are they sort of outside of time waiting? That, you know, if if you will, uh, in the presence of God outside of time, so that there is no time passage. Um, so I had this discussion with somebody once before and he said, well, it's, we kind of had the idea that maybe our presence, you know, the absence of the body is the presence of the Lord is that you're, you're slipping out of our time into the presence of God and your next conscious moment would be during the, the, uh, the return of Christ where Mm -hmm. we all are returning. And so it's kind of like we all end up there at the same time, experiencing the same events all at the same time. I thought that was an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there's a couple things going on that might help you here. Um, let's just go back to Paul's comment. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord with the Lord. Okay, do you think? And this is something he said that he would much rather do. I think Philippians, he's going back and forth, you know, and he's thinking, well, will I go? He's in prison, right? Will I be executed? I'll be with the Lord. That's cool. But if I stay here, then I'll be with you and I could serve you. Okay, probably stay with you and serve you a little bit longer kind of conversation. But notice when he talks about being present with the Lord, do you get a sense that 
when Paul says, I would be rather be present with the Lord, that he is speaking of an unconscious period of time where he's somehow there but doesn't know it? Or does it seem like he's there and enjoying it? Well, he certainly sounds like he'd be enjoying it, and right. we have others where the, the prophets say that they found themselves in heaven and they were experiencing uh, the joy and the amazement of it all and so forth. Sure. So I kind of got sure. you know, okay, input so, from that as well. So what this suggests then, pretty strongly, is that when we are absent from the body, we are consciously present with the Lord, all right? Um, there, There is no you know, people might speculate, well, maybe, like you said, uh, that um, you were unconscious, and then the next conscious moment is when Jesus returns. Well, there's no reason to speculate on that, because the wording seems to indicate we are conscious here, then we pass into the next life and be with Him. And even though there might be, you know, I don't know if it's like a snap-the-finger instantaneous movement, or there's a little in a certain sense, short passage of time where we're moving towards there, or that's our experience. The point is, you're either here or you're there, more or less, with whatever transition time, which probably isn't very long, taking place. Um, to be present with the Lord means to be consciously aware that you're there with Him. And we're waiting. In the book of Revelations, it talks about the saints who had died— oh, that's right wondering how long, O oh Lord, you know, till our, um, our, our, our martyrdom is, is properly avenged, if you will, by God's justice. So every indication that we have is that when we die, we go to be with the Lord and are with Him, and are experiencing something pleasurable, wonderful, even Jesus' characterization of the rich man and Lazarus. There was Lazarus being comforted in the bosom of Abraham. Now, how literal is that? I'm not sure, but remember, even figures of speech are meant to communicate some literal truth or reality. So minimally, we say, well, there was a conscious awareness of this poor man, Lazarus, being comforted in this other place, that case was Abraham's bosom. So uh, we have every reason to believe all of these different literary or biblical examples and characterizations that there is a conscious awareness of comfort and pleasure and satisfaction and safety and peace in the presence of the Lord prior to our resurrection. Okay? Got that so far? Yeah. All right. So I think I think your wife and your granddaughter's grandma is there with the Lord, enjoying His company and the company of the host of heaven, such as they are. Okay. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I just want to say something about time because I think there's quite a bit of confusion that Christians have. We make statements like we go from time into eternity, and uh, which I guess they take to be. Well, it depends on who you're talking to, but maybe a timeless state, where time is no more. Well, um, time—think about this for a moment—time is what keeps everything from happening at once. <laughs> okay? Time is what separates all the details of our experience. So 
you called and now I'm talking with you. The, the when, when you called, was temporally before when I'm answering now. That was in the past, and my next remarks will be in the future, which we just arrived at now. <laughs> Notice how time is passing that allows us the opportunity to do all of these things, to have all of these actions, to engage in all of this activity, to have sequential thoughts. If time wasn't passing, nothing would be happening. Really important. If there is no time, nothing happens. Everything is frozen into a block. The minute something happens, the thing that happens is now is is now present after the thing that was a moment ago. I know it sounds kind of strange, but it's very simple concept. Time is a sequence of events. If there is no time, there are no events. That means nothing happening. If things are happening, then time is passing. It's the simplest way to think of it. So if things are happening, if I am in the process of enjoying God and seeing, you know, my dead relatives who are Christians from the past, or friends that have already died, and I'm gathered together and rejoicing together, these are things that must be taking place in time. And even if we go into a kind of a sleep during the intermediary period, we would still be sleeping in time. We would not be aware of time passing, but time would be passing because things outside of us in the world or wherever are happening. Things are taking place. So I think sometimes Christians get a little bit stumbled up when they're thinking about time not existing anymore, and then it creates problems like, well, what is that going to be like? Well, time will happen. Time will always happen. We will live forever and ever and ever. That would be a temporal existence where things are happening that we are doing in heaven, visiting, enjoying, worshiping. Uh, occupying or um, uh, being involved in meaningful activity, ruling angels, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, all kinds of stuff that's meaningful activity. We, Our existence in the future will be temporal forever and ever and ever and ever. But the things we will be experiencing will all, in time, will all be wonderful things without sin the way God intended. Now, do you think God has kind of a a, a special uh, interaction with time? Because it says that he, you know, he says, I know the beginning from the end. I can see it all. So he's capable of seeing the beginning from the end. Well, he, uh, it, it, right. If, if, if God knows the beginning as the beginning, and then he knows the end as the end, then there's a temporal aspect even to God. Now, I actually don't think he learns anything. I don't think he's learning the beginning and then he learns the end. And when you say he sees the beginning and the end, that needs to be qualified exactly what that means. Now, C.S. Lewis argued that God is outside of time, and what he does is he sees this the, the panoply of time right there. And he can see the beginning and the end and the middle and everything, kind of like you're looking at a big picture or maybe a book, and he could look at any page of the book. But in this regard... If that's the way time is, there is no actual passage of time. Philosophers call that the B-theory of time, but we're all in a book. We're just characters in a book. 
we're not engaged in the the reality of temporal becoming. We're not moving through time, so to speak, and growing older. We are just we are just characters in a book. I I think our experience of temporal becoming is obvious. Time passes, and we're experiencing that. That's called the A theory. And I actually think that God experiences the passage of time, too. God knows the beginning and the end and all things in between because of his omniscience, not because of his timelessness. And uh, the the, uh, the theological biblical requirement of God on, on this regard is only that he did not have a beginning and he will not have an end. The Bible does not require that God be timeless or outside of time, okay? Could be either. And I think there are good reasons to think that God, especially since the creation, has participated in temporal moments. And uh, not that he is changing, but things are changing in his awareness around him. First he created, then he became a man in the person of Jesus. Notice that temporal language. First he created, then he became a man. Some people say, well, that's just the way we talk about it. Well, I don't know. That's the way the Bible talks about it, too. And I don't have any reason to think that God is not temporal. There's nothing in the Scripture that seems to indicate that. So anyway, just a little added bonus here on the time issue. Um, The present moment is the same for everybody, you know, so it isn't like you go out of time and you sit there out of time for a little while into the resurrection, and then you come back into time. Um, It's uh, Rather, it seems pretty clear from the Scripture that there is a conscious awareness during the entire time we are with God and until Jesus returns. We are participating temporally in all of those things, and I think so as well. Yeah, and we also saw uh, Moses and Elijah appear uh, with Jesus, so that was— There there you go, yeah, exactly. They weren't in sleep. They visited—that's a very, very good point. And uh, and there were other things that Jesus said that seems to indicate a temporal understanding or temporal experience, even for God himself. So— so maybe that helps out. But uh, you will be with your wife one day, and so will your granddaughter. She loves the Lord. Absolutely. All right. All right, Bob. Thank Thanks so much Take for care. the call. Okay, brother. Bye-bye now. All right, let's take another break, and we'll come back with more open mic calls on Stand to Reason. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. 
Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Okay, friends, final segment here on Stand to Reason, this hour at least. And uh, let's uh, listen to Matthew from Florida and his questions about Jeremiah and Hebrews and the New Covenant. Matthew? Hey, SDR team. This is Matthew from Jupiter, Florida, calling in with a question that is more of an observation. It seems in my experience that more times speaking theological questions with Christians in-house, in the church, people like to use the term Calvinism or Calvinistic in a derogatory fashion. And I have rarely, if ever, heard someone speak of the Arminian view in a derogatory term or to use it as, I'm not a grammatical expert, but as an adjective maybe, as a descriptor, you know, in a negative way. And I was hopeful to better understand your thoughts on that. Um, Thank you for your consideration. God bless. Thank you, Matthew. We actually have two Matthews lined up here, so we'll take them in reverse order, this one on the issue of Calvinism, not the New Covenant. Um, and it is an interesting observation, I, uh, being Reformed myself and actually being part of these conversations uh, between the nature of salvation and the nature of election, etc., differences between Arminians and Calvinists. This is something I'd uh, and when I say Calvinist, I think in the broadest sense, reform folk. Um, but it do, it does seem like Calvinists get a bad rap, and I and it, and I'm partly because sometimes they're a little doctrinaire and can be a little bit um, intense about their views. And I think that Arminian folk are less intense about it, and um, unless they're really committed Arminians, and then there could be more intensity. Um, I think it's a fair observation that the Calvinists get the bad rap, but not the Arminians. But I I have a suspicion about this, and it just occurred to me just now, and I could be completely wrong. People who are Reformed are Reformed as a matter of... um, uh, i got to be careful how I say this, because I don't want to miscommunicate. But let's put it this way, as a matter of thoughtful principle, and I'm not saying that Arminians aren't thoughtful, but I mean, I, but what I'm saying is if somebody holds to Reformed doctrine, it's because they have been thinking about it and they have become convinced of it, even against the tide of popular opinion to some degree, and therefore hold to it um, with a, a, a kind of a doctrinal understanding and with for specific reasons. People who are Arminian are kind of, in a sense, for lack of a better word, accidentally Arminian. That is, you could become a Christian and believe the gospel and be saved to be regenerate and never address this issue. And in your mind, it's just, well, I believed and received Christ. 
and then some reform person talks about the nature of election, and this sounds odd, because maybe in one's personal experience, they don't know about all that. They just think, well, I received Jesus, and I could have denied Jesus, which is true. So therefore, what I believe is probably the right way. What's all this other stuff? They don't know about it. And so that's why Arminians are not kind of motivated to defend their view, unless they arrived at the Arminian view as a matter of principle. They have thought through it, they've weighed both sides, and they're Arminian. And those people who are like that, I don't know if you're listening, Amy, but I'm curious what your own response is to this, but we can't, you're not on the show. So, but those who have, who have, who are Arminian as a matter of principle, like the way most Reformed or Calvinists are, are as a matter of principle, are going to probably be just as doctrinaire, okay? In other words, just as, like, strong-headed about it. Um, and But the vast majority, I think, don't think about this, and they probably would default to Arminianism, because that seems to make the most sense to them, and they haven't really thought about the other issues, and it's no big deal, so they're not going to be doctrinaire. Those who are Calvinists are going to be, I think, have are that way as a matter of principle, having worked through it. So whether you're Arminian as a matter of print, if you're an Arminian as a matter of thoughtful principle, and there are plenty of thoughtful Arminians, and you're Arminian as rather Calvinist as a matter of thoughtful principle, you're probably both going to be equally doctrinaire about it because you've thought it through. And if you're not a Calvinist, as a part of thoughtful principle, you're probably not a Calvinist. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Amy. She's not listening. <laughs> she's reading the funny papers. <laughs> no, she's working and not listening. That would be my explanation. Of course, whether a person's intense or unpleasant or called names or whatever has nothing to do with what view is theologically true. But it simply strikes me as I think about it is that that th- those who are Calvinistic are, are hold their opinion for stronger reasons, and those most who are Arminian just that's their default position, and they haven't really thought about it, and so they're not going to fuss about it too much, unless you're an Arminian who's really worked through it, and then you're probably going to be more doctrinaire, just like those Calvinists who work through it, something like that. All right. How about uh, Matthew from Florida on the New Covenant? Matt, what's that? Good day, STR, and my brother in Christ, Gregory Kokel. <laughs> Question for you concerning Hebrews 8, verse 11 specifically, where it talks about there will be no need to teach a neighbor or a brother in the New Covenant. And I've been searching commentaries hoping to find some more direct information on that. And I realized it's referencing Jeremiah and I went there and looked as well and commentaries there. And I'm just not finding anyone that really wants to touch upon the topic of no need for teaching and what that means. And I'm trying to better understand the timing of when this new covenant is taking place. If this is current time And I'm just a little bit in a spin about what it all means. So I'd love to hear your approach, your hermeneutic or ideas on what that really means. So Hebrews 8.11, 
and the corresponding verses are in Jeremiah 31, I believe. But uh, I'll leave that to you. God bless you all. Take care. Okay, Matthew, a very good question, and uh, one that's a little bit involved. i got seven minutes to go. Um, no, make that five minutes to cover this. Uh, this is a passage in Hebrews that's citing the prophecy regarding the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 and following. And what Jeremiah says, remember, this is given at a time when the Jews are in captivity for not keeping the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant entails a whole bunch of all these particular things. Do this, do that, at a certain time, in a certain way, blah, blah, blah. you got the Ten Commandments, you got the massive number of other ordinances, hundreds of other ordinances that the, 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 the Jews were supposed to keep with precision. Okay, this is required. And if you did it, you got blessed. If you didn't do it, you got cursed as a nation. Okay, turns out they didn't do it, and now they're being cursed as a nation, by with 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and that's the circumstance in which Jeremiah is speaking. And Jeremiah says, I, I am, behold, I am going to make a new covenant with you, not like the one that I made, that's Jeremiah speaking for God now, with you when I brought you out of Egypt, the covenant which you broke. Okay? And uh, that, of course, the Mosaic covenant. But this is going to be a covenant that's very different. And then he explains some of the differences that's captured here in Hebrews 8. It's a citation out of Jeremiah 31. Okay? Now, what I want you to think about is that these phrases, like, you will not have anyone who needs to teach you anymore, I don't think that means that teachers are gone, because there are always going to be teachers to help you understand the Word of God and how this all works. And in fact, the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus said, by when he initiated the New Covenant. This is the blood of the New Covenant. So this is a New Covenant age. He said, the Holy Spirit will come and will bring you remembrance of all these things that I have taught to you. Holy Spirit is going to bring remembrance to the disciples. The disciples are then the mouthpieces to the churches regarding the New Covenant functional details. Okay, the Old Covenant had massive amount of particular detail that people had to be taught line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, to keep every one of those things. That's not the New Covenant. The New Covenant isn't one of these bulky things with all of these particulars that you have to keep. It is a different kind of covenant in which there is per full and complete personal forgiveness of sin. Your sins and your transgressions I will remember no more, verse 12. Okay? And so there's the contrast there. Jeremiah, neither Jeremiah nor the writer of Hebrews is suggesting that no one needs to be taught anymore. It's comparing two systems. One system with tremendous burdensome granularity that must be taught and instructed in order to do all the right things all the time. That is all done away with. Now the Spirit is given inside of us. It's not a law on stone. It is the law of love, I'm going to insert that here because I think that's the New Testament principle, inserted in our hearts. And when we are not under the law, Galatians 5, as the Spirit is working in our lives, then it produces the fruit 
of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are things that the Holy Spirit is doing in us. So I'm moving quickly here because I'm almost out of time. But it is a contrast between a system with lots of details, which details needed to be taught, and it was all external, with a system that doesn't have all those details, It has some details and ways that we're to comport ourselves, but it wasn't this massive compendium of laws and principles, rather a law of love written on our heart that the Holy Spirit would work in us, and that's a provision of the New Covenant. We learn more about that from Ezekiel, and the giving of the Spirit then allows us to live the kind of life that is the fulfillment of the Spirit of all of those laws. We have two. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, those two things fulfill the whole law. We don't need all of this, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, all these particulars. No, 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 no. You don't need to be taught that anymore. Now you've got something else, a very straightforward, simple living thing on your heart where your heart's are touched by God and by a spirit, and you are in that sense taught by the spirit. Okay? Oh, five minutes. Did it. Pretty close. Hope that makes sense to you. Matthew, excellent question. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye.